Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shaw, editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. National Public Health Week, the annual initiative from the American Public Health Association, falls within the first full week of April. On this episode of Managed Care Cast, to mark the conclusion of National Public Health Week this year, which ran from April 4th through April 10th, we speak with Dr. Perry Helkitis, Dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health, who is also a public health psychologist, infectious disease epidemiologist, applied statistician, researcher, educator, and advocate. He discusses training the next generation of public health professionals, why a paradigm shift is necessary around integrating mental health awareness into public health education, and the importance of activism and advocacy to eliminating health disparities. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Halkidis. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell us about your work? I'm Perry Halkidis. I am the Dean of the School of Public Health at Rutgers University. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and a public health psychologist who's been working really actively in the area of COVID specifically over the course of the last two and a half years, as many, many of us have been. Now, discussions around mental health and its effect on physical health and quality of life have never been more prominent. As someone who has been a public health advocate, educator, and researcher for several decades, how have education and training in this area shifted and what will education officials need to consider going forward? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. And I'm going to just in my response sort of echo a commercial from television um, from I think two or three years ago, maybe, maybe long, probably longer that says depression hurts. Right. And you know, this notion that physical and mental health, our separate entities is something that unfortunately has been prevalent in our treatment of individuals and our prevention efforts over the last century. Somehow emotions, psychological states, the brain being separate from the rest of our cells is an absurd dichotomy that has been perpetuated perhaps in part because I think there's been a diminishing of the importance of mental health on the part of a medical profession. I think what is abundantly clear to so many of us who have been doing public health work, who are public health psychologists, who study infectious disease epidemiology, is that psychological states, whether they be things from severe depression to PTSD, to even psychosocial states like loneliness and what have you, are intimately related to physical realities and to risk behaviors, quite frankly. I've spent 20 years looking at the impact of substance use and mental health on HIV risk-taking behaviors in sexual minority populations. And time and again, individuals who are more depressed, who have more PSD, who have experienced childhood sexual abuse, who use substances are more likely to engage in risk. And so unfortunately, many of the public health programs in our country do not focus on this aspect of well-being. Our, our school does, in fact. We have the one of the nation's first, if not the first, concentration in population mental health, recognizing that 
students need to understand mental health as much as they understand physical health. Many of the faculty members of our school have expertise in this domain, and many of our courses try to tie together the intricate, complex synergy that exists between mental health, physical health, and one more piece, social health. Because I don't think you can think about social health, and by that I mean economic health, living conditions, all of those things that, you know, that affect health, separate from one's tendency to take risk behaviors or to, to, to smoke or to have cancer or to be obese or to acquire COVID, right, um, from their depression, their psychological states. And all of these things happen synergistically. And, you know, George Engel in 1977 wrote a uh, about a paradigm shift that was needed in the field. And he called this new model the biopsychosocial model. And this is, frankly, what's been guiding my work for a very long time, which is recognizing that if we're going to elevate the well-being of the entire population, it is not enough just to focus on one of those areas, but we have to collectively work on all of those areas. Let me give you one other case in point, which is methamphetamine addiction. We know methamphetamine addiction is prevalent in the United States. Too often, uh, programs focus just on the behavior and don't uh, focus on the motivations or the psychological states that are driving the behavior, and as well as the outcomes of using meth on somebody's social well-being, right? And so if you're going to develop a program that's going to address meth use, you have to address all three areas. So I think programs will be moving in this direction. I think their medical profession is recognizing the importance of dealing with the entirety of a person's well-being. But I will say this, until such time that people realize that mental health is health and that social health is health, we're gonna to have to continue to push this agenda, this, this really important agenda in terms of teaching and in terms of research. This is really a key piece, right? And you know, it's sort of like the same thing that we talk about when we talk about identity, right? Which is like, you know, why do we want, you know, doctor's offices to ask people about their sexual identity and their gender identity? Because it's part of their social well-being. And so you're right. I mean, I think when doctors ask how are you feeling, they're generally asking, how does your body feel? Do you feel sick? Nobody's asking you if you're feeling depressed that day or blue or out of whack or any of those things that, quite frankly, are as debilitating to one's body, to one's brain, to one's life as physical realities are. And look, when we think about psychological states, absolutely, you know, there is very clear evidence from the last 30 or 40 years that there are physiological manifestations of depression and, you know, and anxiety. And we know that neurotransmitter imbalance is cause of those things. So, you know, I, I, it's going to take time for general practitioners and internists and infectious disease doctors to understand this. But I think we're getting to the point where they do understand it. Um, I want to say one more thing, Maggie. I think it's like really interesting because, you know, you had all of these MDs, all of these uh, medical doctors coming forward and doing really, really good work during the COVID the COVID pandemic and you know we had this development of the vaccine about the pharmaceuticals and we rushed vaccines forward which is fantastic and these vaccines work but nobody really thought about using the vaccines <laughs> and nobody thought about how we were going to administer the vaccines how people were going to react to the vaccines and like you can do all the amazing science you can but unless you deal with the human aspect and what we're talking about here human aspects of health you're going to miss a huge part of the population as we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, views on vaccination and public health measures have largely been split among party lines. How can we separate politics from public health? Well, I don't know that, that there's an easy answer to that. Well, first of all, we have to accept the fact, because for a very long time, people felt like politics and public health were not 
yeah, intermingled, but they clearly are intermingled. Like, and and it's not just the last three years of COVID that it manifested. That there was vaccine riots and vaccine hesitancy 100, 150 years years ago. So this is not a new phenomenon whatsoever. You only need to go back to the AIDS epidemic and look at the you know political reactions to that and what what Jesse Helms did. You know in you know, in reaction to the safer sex campaigns that, you know, the wonderful Lynn Manuel Miranda, you know, depicted in Tick, Tick, Boom, you know, showing how, how Jesse Helms and the Senate sort of like started to pull back funding when things were talked about sex openly because it was, you know, same sex behavior. Uh, so I don't I, I don't know what the answer is. The answer, I think, however, in part is how do we communicate more effectively? And I think that, you know, public health has done a disservice to itself by not being out front, by not open speaking frankly, by not speaking adamantly and being like the face of health in our country. And I think what is very clear over the last few years is that when public health officials who really understand human behavior in a way that many other health officials do not are talking to people, we're able to affect the change now. So that's part of the answer. I think the other part of the answer is like what I've been saying from the very beginning of this pandemic, which is that we need to teach a generation of young kids in school science. Misinformation doesn't work if people know science or if people know politics and civics and government and how it works. If children understand how a virus works, if children understand how bacteria works, if children understand how vaccines work, if we actually focused on teaching children science, and civics, as much as we focused on math and reading, which has become the center of schools for way too long, we would have an educated public, but we don't have an educated public. And as a result of that, it's very easy to spread misinformation. And it's very easy for very savvy politicians to manipulate people with misinformation as a result. So we have our work to do in the long term, in terms of educating our public, but in the short term, making sure that people like me and others are upfront talking about these issues with folks like you and saying, hey, public health is here to help. We are regular people. We understand We understand how people act and we want to work with you to help make things better. And I want to explain to you, you can exchange, if you can shift one person's behavior, you made a change. And I felt like that's the kind of conversations where are not finger pointing, but are more engaging and are really tapping into what people's, what matters to people is going to be what's going to really work. How did the worldwide response to the HIV and AIDS epidemic shape our response to the current pandemic? And how might our ongoing response to COVID-19 influence future pandemics going forward? So it's, you know, HIV and COVID are not identical, but there are, very, there are similarities. I think what we learned during the AIDS epidemic was the importance of voice and activism and really pushing our government to do things. I think 40 years after that, the government was very responsive, in fact, during the course of the pandemic, for the most part, in like putting forward like the development of vaccines. It wasn't particularly helpful in providing information that was accurate about where the disease was and what not to do. I mean, in fact, it was problematic in that regard. Um, but you know, certainly the development of, of vaccines within a record time um, is something that has to be like upheld. Like, I mean, we're 41 years in the AIDS epidemic, we still don't have a vaccine for HIV. I mean, so, you know, one year, 
41 years. I mean, there's like, I think there was a lesson there that, you know, if we acted faster, we may have been more effective in actually preventing the deaths that we saw. I think that, you know, the fact that there were counter arguments all along when we were, where people were speaking out openly about not fearing this thing, about taking care of yourself, about doing the right thing, about advocating for your people in your life. Those were really helpful lessons from the AIDS epidemic, you know, um, but I think what we didn't learn is the importance of public health infrastructure. And, you know, we entered the, this last two years, last two and a half years with a, a public health infrastructure that was, you know, pretty much decimated because there was no money being put into it. And I think the lesson we leave from here is, yes, activism matters. Yes, human voice matters. Yes, medicines matter. But public health matters. And so we have to, one, continue to pour money into public health infrastructure. And number two, we have to train the next generation. I read a report today that like 30% of uh, entities, public health entities in the, in the country do not have a lead epidemiologist. That's unbelievable to me, right? And so schools like mine, like ours, need to continue to train the next generation to go into the field. At the same time, we need to elevate the profession because the same people who are going to work in public health entities are also the people who are being harassed by the general public. And so protections against folks who are working in these organizations, you know, limiting the, the hate that they're experiencing, calling out the haters um, is going to be just as important as including people and, and, and training them. And, you know, they have to make people feel safe if they're going to take a job that they're going to be they're going to be OK. Another area that's become apparent is disparities. Outcomes disparities among racial and ethnic minorities have been pushed to the forefront, especially regarding mortality and vaccination rates. Why have we not achieved healthcare equity? And should this be an area public health education programs address? Um, yes, is the answer, but let me get to it. Of course, it would be something we should address. And activism and advocacy and the elimination of health disparities has to be the heart and soul of really modern public health programs. Our school is rooted in social justice and health equity. It's in our mission statement. It's what we do. It means we do good science, we do good practice, and we do good research and community engagement, all with that, with that in mind. Um, look, I, I am honestly exhausted with the documentation of health disparities. We know there's health disparities. Obesity, health disparities. HIV, health disparities. COVID, health disparities. And what do you tend to see? The most marginalized populations are affected. People of color generally, low-income people, people who are immigrants, people who are sexual and gender minorities. These are the groups in our, in our country that continue to be bombarded by these diseases, and we don't, and we don't see a distribution of the diseases um, equally across all populations. In fact, HIV, when it first started, was equally spread as closely associated economic spectrum, and now it's lodged at the lower end. Same thing's happening with COVID, right? You know, you tend to see, you know, at the beginning, everybody can be at risk because nobody really knows about this disease. And lo and behold, what's happening now, it's lodging itself at the end. So I, I don't want to read another report on disparities like we know. Disparities is the description of the difference. Equity is the fighting of the, of the difference. And so what we need to be doing our, in our schools of public health and what public health officials and what government and political officials need to be doing is fighting for strategies and policies that get rid of the disparities and lead towards equity. Now, what does that mean? That means that you have to take a hard look at the way economic structure is set up in the country, the way the healthcare structure is set up in the country. And these are very difficult questions. And these are very challenging questions. And there are people who are feet stuck in the sand who don't want to move. But you're not going to get to health equity unless you have income equity. And you're not going to get to health equity unless you have like healthcare equity. And we don't have those things. Right? And so I think as a nation, 
we have to push ourselves to the point and saying, look, we need those, those forms of equity and health equity will naturally fall out as a result of that. And by the way, racial equity and you know, gender equity and sexual equity, like you have to protect, you have to, you have to treat people equally regardless of who they are. And you have to give people an equal opportunity to make a fair living, a good living, an equal living and have health care. If you do all those things and you don't lodge all the money into 1% of the population, you're going to have health equity in this country. Until such time comes, you're going to continue to have health disparities and the people who are the poorest or the most marginalized or the most put upon are going to continue to get sick and die at high rates very often that's people of color in our country. And so we need a paradigm shift. We need a structural change. Not enough about saying, you know, we're going to do more tests in black communities. Not enough about saying we're going to increase vaccine programs in black. We have to just create opportunities for those communities to make money and to be healthy as a result of that. And that's not where we are right now. And I think for the listeners, there is a, my dear friend, David France, who made the film How to Survive a Plague, has just released a new film called How to Survive a Pandemic, which is streaming on HBO Max. And he does a really amazing job at demonstrating many of the things you've talked about, Maggie, including the misinformation, but also access in like, you know, in one community of Philadelphia. And I encourage viewers to watch this film. It is a powerful film about how vaccines were developed and the science around that, but at the same time, the disconnect, as we talked earlier, from the humanity and from human beings and their everyday realities. How can data on outcomes be synthesized to overcome these barriers to health equity? Simple analyses will say, oh, like, you know, this group versus that group experiences more disparities, right? And that's fine. That's descriptive. But we need to look at processes and we're looking into mechanisms and we need to figure out what the data show us about what the structures are in people's lives, what the conditions are in people's lives that fuel those disparities, right? So if you can look at the mechanics, what the drivers are, then you can affect the drivers. So look, here's the other thing. You have an infection that's really deep. You can treat it with topical cream and it may go away, or you could do the deep-rooted problem, which is treated with antibiotics. So what I'm saying here is that the disparities and the differences and the, and the differential outcomes in health are not a matter of demographics. They're a matter of mechanics and processes and social conditions. And so what are the social conditions that are driving these disparities? Why is it that gay young black men continue to be at risk for HIV? They're not having more sex. They're not having more partners. No, but they are stigmatized because they are black. They are often poor and they are gay. And that creates risk in their lives, right? So you've got to deal with those things that are the drivers, right? The, you've got to take five steps back and see what's driving the disease in order to, to like eliminate the difference. And so that's what I think we can do with the data. Try to figure out if the data show us exactly what the mechanisms are, what the causal pathways are that take us from, you know, these processes, these social conditions, to these outcomes, and then not just to try to eliminate the outcome, but prevent the outcome, right? And public health is all about prevention. And here in Public Health Week that we are having this conversation, it is more cost-effective for our country to prevent disease than to treat disease. And so if we can prevent those issues, if we can address those issues and reduce the risk of individuals and reduce the, the poor health outcomes, it will ultimately be beneficial to the person, ultimately, but also to the population. That was the last question I had for you, Dr. Halkidis. Are there any concluding thoughts or is there anything else you would like to add? 
Well, I would like to, first of all, thank you for having this conversation with me. I think that it is important as we think about public health and about the work we're doing about COVID and about HIV and about obesity and about smoking and all the health disparities within our country that we continue to adopt this like really um, strong um, activist and advocate-based approach to public health um, and really recognize that human beings are human beings and that we have to treat human beings as human beings if we're to affect behavior and not to just treat people who are like during the COVID pandemic that they're just like vessels for the pathogen to exist. No, these are complex organisms with real lives, with real feelings, with children, with partners, with, with realities. And unless you deal with the whole person, the biological, the psychological and the social person, you're not going to really, really affect the change in the totality of the population. So that's what I think we have to continue to advocate for as we move forward in our efforts around public health. Well, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time. I love having these conversations with you anytime. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.